Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your channel host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking with Jeff Hobbs, who's the author of Show Them Your Good, a portrait of boys in the City of Angels the year before college. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Oh, thank you, uh, Christina. Thank you for having me, and it's special to be here with you. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about this book. I think there's so much in it that's really going to resonate with listeners. So to start us off, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, of course. Uh, I, I am an author, uh, and I grew up in the country surrounded by land and books. And uh, my whole childhood and my whole life, really, I read fiction. I just wanted to write fiction. I uh, was lucky to publish fiction when I was a lot younger, uh, which I don't necessarily recommend. Um, but I have been drawn to nonfiction in my adult life. Uh, it began with a book I wrote called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, uh, which was a very personal book about a, uh, a very close friend of mine who passed away. Um, and the experience of that kind of drew me, like many writers, a very introverted person into uh, just the, the magic of being in the world, talking to people, listening to their stories. Uh, and that is sort of where show them your good came from. Um, and, uh, in the meantime, I'm a father of two young kids and I live in Los Angeles. Uh, I was told that I would live here for six months, uh, when my wife and I moved here and that was 15 years ago. Um, but it's, uh, it's nice here and I'm, I'm just grateful to be able to, do this work. And so that leads to the next question, which is if you had to give someone a little summary of what this book is, what would you tell them? Uh, this book, Show Them Your Good, is a very simple book. Uh, I just followed a group of high school senior boys through their senior year. Uh, at two very different schools in two very different neighborhoods here in Los Angeles. Um, and the book came from, uh, I mentioned the short and tragic life of Robert Peace. Uh, because of that book, I was given this privilege of being invited to schools kind of all over the country and uh, facilitating conversations with young people about big things, uh, race, class, education, access. Uh, and I just heard a lot of wisdom from young people. And we don't often associate wisdom and young people. And, uh, and so this book, just following real people through their challenges and their wonder um, and trying to get to the Next place in life, I, I just I thought it would have positive value uh, to see the world through their eyes. 
And the year that you're following them specifically is the 2016-2017 school year, is that right? Uh, That is right, yeah. And so that year there was a major election, a major presidential election. Um, Can you take us back to that and how the students were feeling about that time period? Because they weren't just trying to plan what a senior year would look like if you were college bound, but they were trying to figure out if their world might change based on a political outcome that most of them weren't old enough to vote for. And some of them didn't have parents who were allowed to vote. Yeah, that, that is a really, really important moment. Uh, and it was one none of us were really prepared for um, in that I began this project in August of that year, 2016. And at that point, the election was underway and everyone was paying a lot of attention to it, but uh, most people had a pretty good sense of what the result would be. Um, And so, you know, the first months of that school year, as I was getting to know these boys and uh, uh, having conversations about their lives and current events, I mean, the election was there, but uh, mostly as kind of a source of reflection and some comedy, as you can maybe imagine. Um, And then uh, it's important to note one of these schools in South LA in uh, a very poor neighborhood. Uh, The school is about 199% Latino students. And uh, so the election results, no matter your politics, it, uh, it didn't feel good for them. Uh, and suddenly that event in terms of the work we were doing in the, in the book, uh, became a lot bigger than it had been. Um, and, uh, uh, I remember talking with them and talking to their teachers about the emotional effect and having my own presumptions about their sadness and resignation. Uh, and one thing that uh, was sort of common at this school, it's called Animo Pat Brown, uh, was that that election actually inspired hope, uh, not necessarily hope in, in the country and politics, but hope in themselves and their own voices and uh, and their own capacity to be unafraid. Uh, and that really colored a lot of that year. And uh, it really, sorry, I'm already getting emotional thinking back to it. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about, you know, kids wearing signs around their neck that said free hugs. Um, but uh, it, it, it was a really beautiful thing in spite of how difficult it was. So for listeners, you chose two schools in sort of the greater LA area. And one was Animo Pat Brown Charter High School, and the other was Beverly Hills High School. How did you choose those two very disparate schools? And were they as disparate as they sound when you're reading them? Or was there far more in common between the two schools than you might you might expect? <clears throat> Uh, th- thanks. And that, that's a really good question. The, uh, uh, 
uh, about commonality versus disparity. And it's really at the heart of this book. Um, but as to the schools themselves and how I ended up there, um, I, I mentioned that I had, you know, I was just carrying these experiences I was having around America in schools. And I had this idea to um, just try to just find regular kids um, and and be with them and see through their lenses. And uh, my wife thought I'd lost my gourd. <laughs> You're probably right. Um, but what I learned very quickly is that no principal really wants a journalist roaming around his or her hallways. Uh, and so there's a lot of sort of hoops to jump through. Uh, and there's a lot of, there was a lot of faith that administrators and the schools had to place in me and my intentions. And, uh, and there was a lot of courage of, of young people to, uh, put themselves forward and give a lot of time during a year when they didn't have much time. So, uh, um, so Beverly Hills High School, Animo Pat Brown High School, uh, there, I had happened to know teachers. There were both schools I'd visited before to speak and I knew teachers. And, uh, like I said, they, they put some trust in me to, um, you know, try to do some honest, positive work. Uh, and, a lot of people ask me, like, what were your criteria criteria for choosing these particular boys who are highlighted in the in the pages? And actually, they sort of chose me. I just uh, um, I just went and uh, spoke about what I was there for, and these guys came forward and um, said they uh, would take part. Um, and, uh, they're really good guys. And these are both public schools. Is that correct? Yeah. And, uh, and so Beverly Hills, I mean, if you watched TV in the nineties, you uh, probably have a, have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. Um, and your idea would be wrong. Uh, because of the nature of, of television. But uh, Beverly Hills is a public school in a obviously a very wealthy district uh, where the private sector looms large. Um, and uh, um, it has more resources than uh, most public schools, but it's still public. And then Animo Pat Brown is actually a an affiliated charter school, which means um, they're independently managed as far as the curriculum and, and a lot of the programming, but uh, financially they're tied to the district and, and the schedule and everything. Um, You know, so each school is, is sort of unique in, in the context of, of the landscape here in Los Angeles. Uh, and that was really complicated to learn, um, but really interesting as well. Um, and in the meantime, you have students going through high school who, you know, they don't really worry too much about um, 
district boards and how decisions are made. Uh, These guys are are just going through school. And because it's not ideal for a journalist to be walking around the school campus all the time, the boys often met with you in their free time. You get together and have a bite to eat and and get caught up on, on the details of their school journey and their personal lives. Did the boys from both schools come to the same meetings or was this kept sort of separate? Uh, Oh, good question. Um, So at at these schools, I went to a lot of classes and sports and plays and school dances and uh, sort of the whole experience. It was important to me writing about schools to try to not make the reader feel like they were back in school because, you know, that wouldn't be very pleasant for a lot of people. Um, But the the meat of the research, the very heart of it was once a week at each school separately, um, I would meet with uh, this group of four or five boys in each school um, in a classroom after school and we would just talk for usually around two hours uh, but sometimes three or even four hours and like you said I, I would bring food which uh, maybe is, is why they came <laughs> um, uh, I hope not um, and yeah I would maybe have prompts uh, and we'd talk about current events and the election and, and drama in the school but uh, mostly they ended up just talking to each other. And, and it was, uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it therapeutic, but it, it had some group leavening quality that, that was really kind of wonderful. Um, and as to your question, the, the meetings were separate and the, the boys from each school still haven't met. They were both fully aware of what I was doing and that I was at another school that was very different. And they were all very interested and fascinated by the experiences of the others compared to their own experiences. Uh, And I'd always kind of planned to have some kind of barbecue or something at at the end of the day, uh, maybe at the end of the school year. and, And then they graduated and um, everybody's getting ready to move on to the next step and they're busy and uh, it it just never worked that we could all be together in one place uh, having pizza, which uh, was sad. Um, was it sad for you or were they disappointed too? It, it's just hard to, it was in your mind all one project for them because they were also focused on getting to school, you know, getting to college and all the steps it took were, were they in their minds kind of separate from the project in a lot of ways? Uh, that's such an interesting, uh, way of thinking about it because yeah, it's part of the nature of this work. I guess you call it immersive, uh, immersion journalism. Um, yeah, that's probably what my work is called. And yeah, so for me, I mean, every spare minute that I'm not with my family is working on a project. And for them, maybe I'm just some guy that sort of swings through every 
every day or two to catch up. Uh, but I mentioned sadness, uh, and I was I was thinking about the end of that school year, uh, and we'd spent hundreds of hours together, and uh, um, we'd sort of created. They had created this kind of tender uh, space that was filled with a lot of non- nonsense and jokes because they're teenage boys and uh, it, it was filled with a lot of emotional complexity and, and trauma they'd been through and uh, uh, just real deep insight that, uh, again, I, I don't think teenagers are often given much credit for. Um, so that's another element of my work is when it ends, uh, I mean, the project doesn't end, but uh, there's kind of a a pulling away that inevitably happens. And it kind of mirrors the whole high school experience. You're in this space with each other, people you've been with for most of your life, and uh, you kind of know what every day is going to be like for 12 years, and and then it ends, and, and then you don't know. Uh, what what the next day is going to be like, uh, and uh, you don't know who your friends are going to be, and people change. So uh, you know that that part of the passage, the coming of age passage, was also part of the of the work and the and the writing of this book, um, and uh, it, it was a hard part. I really admire these guys. And there are a number of ways that you you follow their path, but given our time constraints here, I'd like to ask you just about two of them. Uh, one is Carlos, who was at the uh, charter school, um, and he was one who the election really had profound consequences for him. Um, he was um, undocumented, and so were his parents. And he's trying to get into college, and he's dealing with all of these scholarship applications. And um, you take us through sort of the complexity of the paperwork, and it reminded me of my own um, work trying to, to fund school for myself. Um, and yet, I, I didn't face anything similar to, to theirs. Um, but there, there are barriers, uh, financial barriers. There's all kinds of them, and they really those um, perilous things really come to the forefront. And Carlos's story, when on paper, he's a shoe in for college. He has a 4.6 GPA. He's in the high 1400s on his SATs. He's got a brother who's in the Ivies. Can you tell us about Carlos's journey that senior year? Uh, yeah, I would love to. And uh, I, I could speak for a very long time about Carlos. Um, and I wrote, you know, a book about him. Uh, uh, Carlos, quickly, he is a kid who, as you said, is undocumented because his parents brought him over a few months after he was born instead of a few months before. Um, and when he began uh, elementary school, he didn't speak English and 12 years later, he was applying to Ivy League universities and uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals at, at the same time. 
And his parents are undocumented. Uh, they both work in the delivery sector in South LA. His father drives a truck. Um, and so that that's, that's the, I don't know, mechanical details of Carlos's story. The, the, the human detail is that he's just a humble, bright uh, person who I would say he put as much kind of effort and feeling into decorating for the Halloween dance to raise money for the school as he did, uh, uh, you know, applying to, to Yale and Harvard. Um, and he spent as much time uh, kind of supporting classmates who weren't on the same trajectory as him as he did celebrating his own more time actually. Um, so all that to say, he, he's just a good guy and, uh, and the election very specifically for him was, was hard, uh, mainly cause he was worried about his parents with the rhetoric uh, that surrounded that election. Um, and at the same time, he's, kind of carrying that classic trope of sort of being the the superstar of his high school and, you know, repre- the pressure of representing his school and also garnering maybe some resentment from from kids around him who, who don't get that kind of accolades and uh, all that sort of childhood uh, noise. And, uh, uh, you know, he did it with a lot of dignity and uh, he's doing so well now. And uh, I actually checked him with him a couple nights ago. And he ultimately chose Yale. Is he still at Yale? I know schools were taping during the pandemic and schools are either only having a reduced number of students in the dorms or they're completely remote. Uh, Yes, he's at Yale. And uh, that was sort of funny because um, in addition to being undocumented and, and all the uh, uh, the challenges I've described, he had this other challenge, which had to do with his older brother already being at Yale and kind of living in an older sibling's shadow is a very uh, universal trope maybe and he was dealing with that and uh anyway all this time he's deciding uh where to go to school and everybody around him sort of knew once he was accepted that he was going to go to Yale and he was going to be near his older brother um uh so I think that choice surprised him but it didn't surprise uh, anybody around him um, and, uh, yeah, he's doing very well at Yale and he's a prolific writer and, uh, they did some sort of staggered residency whereby I think seniors were able to be on campus all year, at least to this point. And you write in the book that with Carlos, his older brother in the Ivies and, and Carlos headed to the Ivies that, you know, people sometimes want to know what the secret sauce is. It sounds like every parent's dream to have their children accepted to the top schools. And 
you write a really lovely um, summary of of his parents and his family on page 69. On other pages, you talk about their home is really what you describe as a backyard shack. It's not even a legal dwelling. Um, And yet you talk about the life that they've created and the parenting they do. And I'm going to read a little bit from that on page 69. And you said, Carlos could have pointed to almost any parenting book or article regarding fundamental child psychology and habits. His parents read to them and encouraged them to read. They were present without being overbearing. They gave their children time for unstructured play. They emphasized good manners and gratitude. The house rules they instilled, clean rooms, home by nightfall, made rational sense rather than seeming arbitrarily authoritarian. They let them fail at things and sort through the aftermath independently. They made sure that their sons felt comfortable asking for help. They challenged without competing. They set the expectations of good results without qualifying it with rewards and punishment. They never made their kids feel more special or deserving than anyone else they knew. They had family dinners most every night. During these dinners, they tried to talk about ideas rather than gossip about people. They didn't complain about their money or their circumstances. They loved one another. I thought that was really one of the most common sense blueprints for raising your children, whether they get into college or whatever they choose to go. It's, it was um, a beautiful summary of how you get kids ready to, to go off on their path in life. Um, and that you wrote that about his parents. I Has he seen that paragraph? Has he looked at the book? Uh, yeah, I, I let uh, all the guys read the book and help edit it, frankly, um, as I was writing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, they all informed the, the whole process of the book was very uh, close with them. So, yeah, he, he's read everything. And for Carlos specifically, um, scholarship programs were really key. And you mentioned the QuestBridge program. Can you talk about how that was really important for, for Carlos's path? Uh, yeah, Quest, QuestBridge is, is a really prestigious um, scholarship for uh, low-income students nationwide. It's very competitive. The... the uh, application slash audition process is very intensive um, on par maybe more so than than standard college admissions um, and uh, um, you know the the actual application of this fellowship is, is kind of complicated maybe too much so to get into here um, but he, he made it through and uh, you end up matched with three universities where you get a full ride. And that happened in December of his senior year. And uh, he was matched with Princeton and, uh, and you can choose to accept the fellowship right away, or you, you can actually choose to kind of defer and see where, you get in regular admissions and regular financial aid um, and then make a choice later in the year, if, if that makes sense. So did the charter school have um, 
someone there who was helping students navigate uh, what was out there, how to find it, how soon to get plugged in, or how did Carlos find out about these these things to pursue that were so crucial to ultimately the success of his path? Yeah, um, that that's really important. Just uh, counseling in general, and uh, and just mentorship when you're when you're young, no matter where you are or what your circumstances are, and uh, it's a big theme of the book. And so, Animo Pep Brown, which is a young school, it was founded uh, about uh, fifteen years ago, uh, and it's about six hundred kids nine to 12. And they have, they have one devoted college counselor for all those kids, which is more than a, more than what a lot of LAUSD schools have. Uh, And she's a special person. I I could go on about her as well. Um, And, you know, for her, I remember I spent a lot of time with her. And one thing she said specifically about Carlos is that he knew what questions to ask, um, which is simple, but uh, when you think about it, you can kind of start to see how absolutely vital that is, especially in a first-generation community where, um, you know, even the most supportive parents can't necessarily support this college admissions process because they've never been through it before. Um, I'd say that's one of the great disparities um, between schools like Beverly Hills and and schools like Animo Pep Brown. Um, And things like if you're... uh, uh, Carlos, I think, was lucky because, A, his brother had already been through the process, so uh, he did have a very intimate uh, mentor, coach, cheerleader who knew all the particulars of Questbridge and everything. Um, and, and he also uh, was part of a greater mentorship organization called Minds Matter, um, which is a national organization um, where he, he had adults kind of just helping him through SATs and college admissions and uh, shoulders to lean on. So, um, he he was very bright and organized himself, and then he he had just a, a lot of people in his corner, uh, and he's wise enough to be grateful for that. And one of the other students that um, I wanted to ask you about is from the other high school, from the Beverly Hills High School, Owen, and Owen's life seemingly is quite different than Carlos's. Um, can you tell us about Owen and if his life really is that different than Carlos's? Oh, sure. And uh, Owen is another guy I, I really admire and could go on about. Um, Owen on paper is basically your a portrait of a Beverly Hills kid in that um, his parents are both very successful Hollywood creatives. Um, his dad in particular is about as successful as a, as a person can be in, in television. Um, so he, he lives in a, in a big house with a, 
with a pool and has never wanted for anything materially and uh, and kind of has a lot of extra time to experience ennui and um, just all all coming of age things. Um, but uh, Owen, it it took a while, and sorry, I paused because I'm thinking of all the boys and and their different stories and and challenges. Um, but Owen, once we sort of got to know each other, he, uh, he started talking about his mother who, when Owen was in eighth grade, uh, was beset by a mysterious, uh, debilitating illness. So throughout high school, his mother was bedridden and in pain and she still is. Uh, and so, you know, Owen knew what uncertainty was and he knew what pain looked like and and he knew about loss in a way that I think a lot of students around him, even students with a lot less means, um, knew. And uh, uh, it's a very important part of the book, uh, which is vulnerability and uh, for young men, um, in the context of the day-to-day, sort of carrying vulnerability in what I would still call is a machismo society. Um, and Owen also is very, very funny, and like his parents, he's a, he's a he's a pretty great storyteller. And Owen had some unique vulnerabilities as well. You. You talk in the book how uh, awkward slash embarrassing experience he had in middle school actually made it into a script for one of his dad's shows. And while maybe Owen's social world didn't know that was actually Owen's personal story informing the script, Owen knew it. And I think back to middle school as being such an awkward and tender time, and I would not want any of my stories from that made into somebody's script. And yet at the same time, you say of of his parents that um, you say he was raised to understand that he would always have everything he needed, but not everything he wanted. And you talk about how he knew he would always have food and shelter and a safe home, but he wouldn't necessarily be given a cell phone or a nice car. Um, a lot of the stereotypical Beverly Hills things he was told not to expect. Um, can you talk about how some of that actually played out for Owen? Did he grow to understand why his parents had this um, way of raising him? Uh, I think he did. And it's been really kind of interesting with all the guys and with Owen in particular, kind of uh, being in touch with them as, as they've gone through college and done a lot of growing up. And uh, I actually, I reached out to Owen recently with a parenting question. I was actually, I've been engaged in this battle with my fifth grade daughter about whether or not she should have a cell phone, which I am uh, uh, very much opposed to. And um, it makes her kind of an outlier among other kids. Uh, I I don't have the means that Owen's family does. Anyway, I was asking Owen if uh, 
if I was being kind of, if he thought I was being arbitrarily archaic or um, if, if I should just kind of get with the times and the program. Um, and he, he said he absolutely, uh, uh, there is value in, in kind of with, withholding certain things if, if there's a good reason. Um, so I, I don't know. I think at the time, like any kind of somewhat spoiled kid, he, he could get uh, a little bratty about maybe things he thought he should have that that he didn't. But uh, very quickly in retrospect, he he uh, wrapped his head around it. And, uh, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think he really appreciates certain things. And unlike Carlos, who really was very determinedly on a, on a college-bound path, you said he knew the questions to ask, he knew the help to take as far as what mentors and school counselors to listen to, what um, programs to get himself in. You named a couple that were really uh, important. He had the older brother to look to as, as a beacon. Um, in contrast, Owen at one point decided maybe he didn't want to go to college. Um, I think the way you portray Owen, he was aware that some of his privilege meant he didn't quite have to scramble as much as the other kids. Is that, is that right? Uh, That that's right. And uh, Owen's privilege, which I think applies to a lot of kids who don't have to worry about money. um, You know, there's guilt and, and there's all those things. And uh, he went, he went through his senior year and much of his life very hyper aware of uh, of privilege and being from Beverly Hills and uh, um, you know trying to form ideas of what it means to be a good person while knowing that nobody else really cares about his ideas because at the end of the day he's a rich kid from Beverly Hills who uh, who always we'll have a pool house to crash in, um, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, he, he was, uh, toying with the idea of just kind of not just avoiding the whole, uh, formality of going to college and, and trying to be an actor. And he was struggling with the cliche of that. And, uh, really in his heart, he, he just didn't want to leave his mom. Um, and, you know, didn't want to grow past the point of sitting next to her bed in the dark every night, uh, talking about their, their days or, uh, you know, there, there was a moment he was in the school play and, uh, had to sing and dance and was nervous about it. And, uh, night after night, he would perform his routine at the foot of his mother's bed while she uh, critiqued him, um, sometimes harshly. Uh, so yeah, uh, Owen, yeah, kind of went back and forth through all the different paths life could take while knowing that uh, his safety net is vast. Um, and uh, I, I felt, uh, you know, I know it's hard to get anybody to sympathize with uh, that, call it a predicament. Um, but I, I thought it was important to put that forward, um, just how uh, 
earnestly he was going through those questions, um, especially during this moment in our country when uh, when uh, there, there's a lot of negativity regarding classism. You spoke earlier about graduation as kind of being this important moment because not only is it this enormous milestone, but it's kind of the moment of no turning back and the sense for everyone that certain relationships either sever as far as will you be able to keep up with your high school friends once you're scattered all over the country or some of you are working jobs and some of you are at school. Um, But there's also a sense that relationships won't be exactly the same or and home won't be the same. Home will be where you're from or where you were raised, but it won't be home home. And for Carlos, it's that once he's on campus, he can't afford to fly home for all the school breaks. Uh, yeah, um, and also his his, uh, his parents aren't able to travel to visit him. And for Owen, it's that if and when he gets time with his mom, he can't count on her health. He can't count on having any of the moments that he was able to create with her during high school. And his mother can't travel either. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, it was... a. Uh... Um, yeah, his father was uh, claustrophobic and couldn't fly, and his mother is bedridden. It, it's a very, for both of these guys that we're talking about, it, uh, I mean, for everybody, that is a passage that changes a lot of things. And for these two guys, it, it was a very, very firm going away. <clears throat> In the few minutes we have left, as you think back on all of these young men that you spent so much time with for a year from both schools. And there's more than we touched on here. And then you you say in the acknowledgements, there's even more uh, that young men that you, that you met that didn't make it into the the book for you. And looking back on all of them, if you had to identify what were some of the key factors that got them from senior year to college acceptance and then being able to go to college. Is it having a mentor? Is it trusting in themselves that if they make this leap, even though everything will change, they can they can manage the leap? Is it that they really worked hard on, on getting that acceptance package together? What are the, if you had to say three or four key factors that are the difference between going and not, what would you say? Uh, well, all, all the factors you mentioned are important and uh, really important. And uh, this book is, it, it's meant to be universally about school and, uh, and that point in life when you're, you're no longer young, but you're not quite old and, and you're having serious thoughts that nobody really take seriously and uh college admissions is a big part of that um uh, to me being internally motivated seemed really important not necessarily with how well you do at school or where you go from school uh because um you know a lot of people get good grades but uh, very important for uh, your mentality and, and sort of health and, and moving from one phase of life to another and, and one challenge to another. Um, 
And uh, another sort of grand factor is uh, is having the capacity to step back from it all, uh, step back from the forms and the and the decimal points and uh, and the prestige of different schools. Um, um, I remember the the college counselor I mentioned said that, uh, and she really truly meant it. She said. Yes, Carlos is going off to Yale, and he's a bright light, but uh, I get way more satisfaction helping a first-gen kid get into you know, Cal State Fullerton than I do Carlos getting into Yale. Um, and, what did she mean by that? I'm sorry? What did she mean by that? Uh, just that... Uh, I mean, you mentioned graduation, and I've been to the Animo Pep Brown graduation ceremony, I think, five times at least, and I brought my kids to it. And, uh, I mean, the format's always the same, and every time I go, I'm just weeping uh, because, uh, and I kind of am right now, just the, the happiness for these pieces of paper that say they graduated high school is just so uh, deep and pure. And it's so, uh, it's shared. Um, And uh, I I think that's related to, uh, to what Miss Reyes was telling me, just that uh, it's not about the rankings or, you know, a 4.6 versus a, a 3.4. <clears throat> and I still don't understand really how you get a 4.6 GPA because uh, I don't think that was possible when I was in high school. Um, it's just the, uh, and going back to your question about factors that, that sort of contribute to this passage, uh, the ability to sort of step back from all that and uh, just experience wonder, uh, pure wonder, whether it's getting a diploma or just learning a new math concept and connecting those synapses in your brain or, you know, understanding your parents better as you grow older. Just all, all, all those difficult, beautiful parts of life, uh, I, I think really are represented in that moment in, in life. And, uh, and it was all kind of special to me. I hope I was able to get some of it in the page. It definitely comes across in the page. And I think what, what you are sharing and what Miss Reyes was sharing is that while the, the GPA has to be good enough, whether it's, you know, a lot of B's or a lot of A's, um, and, you do have to fill out the applications and mail them in. You have to get across that finish line or they don't even have the packet to consider you. It, it comes down to a lot of personal character development. And those are the qualities that have us rooting for the boys in this book. And I think which has you emotional and in talking about them and uh, feeling so privileged that you got to know them and what gets Ms. Reyes out of bed every morning to try to shepherd 600 students through the complexities of 
all of their admissions process. It's the it's the person themselves that you're rooting for rather than the name of the school that they get into. Um, you are so elegant in, in speaking to that, and uh, it means a lot. In the few moments we have left, what will be your takeaway from this book? What will be the thing where you look back on it that always makes you glad you gave so many hundreds of hours to this project? Uh, oh, you know, that that uh, that was kind of a weird question that people would ask me while I was doing it um, about uh, just what do you, you know, what are you doing in high schools? What's the point of all this? And I could never really answer it. And I couldn't answer it until I started catching up with the boys after they had gone to college and you know, we'd get together over the summer or holidays and or just check in different ways. And we'd kind of uh, look back and think about that question. And it, it really does have to do with the idea of the unknown. Um, I'm 40 years old and, you know, I've spent most of my adult life especially as a father, you're just trying to eliminate as many unknowns as you can, right? Uh, For better Mm -hmm. or worse. Uh, And these kids, as as I said, they've gone to school for 12 years and every day has been known. And most days are are pretty boring when you're in school. Uh, And then suddenly you're, you're, you're 17 or 18 years old and so many things are unknown, existential things, geographical things, and financial things. Um, and I think those unknowns are the source of so much of the stress and the erratic behavior and the fragility that, that we tend to associate with with kids that age. But they're also the store, source of just the, as I said, the wonder and the triumph and the kind of magical absurdity and and, uh, and most important, the, the friendship and the human connection that, you know, if you're lucky, defines that time. Um, and uh, I, I guess that to me is, in retrospect, uh, you know, the point of that year. That's a wonderful place to leave this. I wish we had another hour so we could hear about even more of the boys that you followed, but listeners can pick up the book and and find their stories as well. Um, We've been talking with Jeff Hobbs about his book, Show Them Your Good, A Portrait of Boys in the City of Angels the Year Before College. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.